This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Stephen Hausman. I'm speaking today with Dr. Peter Gardino, a professor in the history department at Indiana University at Bloomington. We'll be discussing his latest book, The Dead March, a history of the Mexican-American War, which Harvard University Press published in 2017 and, since its release, has garnered several awards, including the Distinguished Book Award from the Society of Military History, the Bolton Johnson Prize from the Conference on Latin American History, and the Robert M. Utley Book Prize from the Western History Association. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you. It's good to be here. First, why don't we begin by just hearing a little bit about yourself? Tell us about yourself, your background, and how you became interested in history as a profession. So I'm from a middle-class Italian-American family uh, from the border, but from the Canadian border. I grew up in uh, very far upstate New York, uh, just about 20 minutes from the Canadian border. Um, And I had a kind of typical high school education for an American in the 1970s. And one of the things that was typical about it was that the uh, history classes were really not very good. Hmm. Um, So I uh, was interested in history as a child. I'd always read a lot of history, a lot of history and a lot of science fiction, actually. Um, um, But then in high school, my uh, high school teachers convinced me inadvertently that American history and European history were really quite boring. Um, Turns out that's not the case. In, in, neither, in neither one of those is this the case, but this is what I was convinced of. So I went off to college at the University of Chicago. I, was, I, I kind of knew I wanted to study history, and I was kind of casting around for what I might want to do. Um, and so I started taking some courses in Latin American history, and they were the opposite of boring. They were very fascinating, and the professors were very good. Um, and I kept taking more, and then I kept taking more, and I kept, started taking Spanish classes. Um, and pretty soon I was in Mexico, actually, for my senior year abroad. Um, they didn't have a program my junior year. They started the program my senior year, so I went for my senior year. A living, going to classes at the National University and and writing an, an honors thesis, uh, going into um, you know Mexican archives to do this, commuting through Mexico City to do this. Uh, and it was all very fascinating. And, and, and after a while, you start to meet people and things become a little less intellectual, a little more emotional as you start to meet people and start to understand the problems that they face. Um, but, you know, I came out of that convinced that I wanted to study Mexican history. Um, and then I went to graduate school and I wrote uh, a couple of different books, both about the, the 19th century, uh, one about sort of the role that relatively poor people took in national politics during the 19th century and the degree to which they helped and were interested in this notion that Mexico should be a country. Um, And then another one about uh, political culture, but especially about political culture for both poor urban and poor rural people um, in Mexico in the late 18th and 19th century. Um, And these are both kind of typical uh, academic books, you know, limited readership. They've been used in graduate courses and the occasional undergraduate courses. Mostly you don't sell many of those kinds of books. Um, They don't have much general interest. And how did that lead you to the Mexican-American War specifically as a topic for this book? So there were like two motives that brought me to the war. One uh, kind of more purely intellectual and uh, one more political and emotional. Um, the more purely intellectual one uh, is from the f- idea that I came to understand that, you know, many of us, when we think about Latin America, we write about Latin America, we're engaged in comparisons, especially implicit comparisons with places that were more successful with Western Europe, um, with the United States. 
the sort of narrative of uh, just about anything in Latin America is about, you know, why is it poor? Why has democracy been so difficult? Why have there been, you know, authoritarian regimes at different times in Latin America? And that's actually a very implicitly comparative narrative because it's based on the premise that other places were more successful. And so I decided that implicit comparisons are sloppy. Um, they're not very good comparisons. And it might be worthwhile to sort of take a moment in history and compare Mexico and the United States uh, at a moment when they, when, when, you know, they, they, they were, uh, you know, you know, both going through some of the same kinds of issues. Um, and so once I decided to do that, the, the Mexican war was the obvious moment to pick, right? Um, because they're literally, um, um, you know, going kind of toe to toe. But then there's the other side of this, which is what, as I was thinking about these, I had thought about these things for a number of years, but I really um, committed to this project um, in 2003, um, in the late winter of 2003. And uh, in the late winter of 2003, what was going on in the U.S. was a, some powerful politicians were developing the case that we should invade Iraq. Okay? Um, and they eventually got this way, and they launched this invasion of Iraq. Okay. Um, and this is extraordinarily frustrating to me um, because it was you know, very clear to me that they were underselling the consequences of this action, the consequences of this action for Iraqi civilians, the consequences of this action for American uh, you know, military people, the, 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 the long-term consequences of this action for the Middle East. Um, and I was very frustrated and very angry. Um, and I had an, a, a sort of aura of inevitability about it. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I have to write the, the book about the war now. I can't do the other book. Huh. <laughs> I have to write the book. So I'll always regret that I didn't write it. Um, and that's what sort of pushed me into, into, into working on this. Of course, once you start working on something, it takes you quite a long time because you've got classes and you've got a family and all sorts of things like this. Um, so it didn't really come out as pointed out until 2017. Uh, I want to get back to that question of comparison in a second. But first, I want to talk just a little bit about your methodology, because you describe the book as as sort of a social history of the conflict of the Mexican-American War and of the people who fought in that war. And for listeners who might not know what that means, can you tell us a bit about what it does mean to write a military history in this way? And what do you think is gained uh, when we pay attention to the everyday men and women who experienced uh, this conflict or any conflict? So when you're trying to write a social history of a war, um, you're interested in, um, yeah, you're interested in generals and politicians, and they show up in this book, okay, and they do things and they make decisions, um, and they're often very colorful. But you're mostly interested in ordinary people, ordinary civilians, um, ordinary people actually end up in the armed forces and become soldiers or sailors. Um, and uh, the notion that you have is that, well, you want to get at their experiences, Okay. You know, how did a Mexican peasant woman um, 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 experience this war? How, 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 would, how, how, how would she experience this war? How would an, a, an, an American woman in Kentucky or Indiana who had a son go off to fight in this war experience it? Uh, what were the experiences that the you know, extremely poor people ended up in the American regular military um, have during this war? Um, and so you're getting at the people who are actually doing things. Right, who are actually making sacrifices and actually doing things. Um, and these are uh, very real people with very real everyday concerns um, that they're constantly trying to sort of interpret in this new framework in which all of this violence is happening. Okay. Um, in which sometimes they're inflicting the violence, sometimes they're being the victims of the violence. Um, and in the case of the Americans, often they're taken very far from home uh, to do this. And even many of the Mexicans are taken very far from home to do this. Um, so the difficulty is that these ordinary people, they don't typically write memoirs. Um, they don't leave a huge documentary record. So you've got to go all over the place to relatively obscure archives and unorganized uh, collections to try to get at their experience. Um, and often you're, you're, you can get at their voices, but you have to do this in, in, in kind of imaginative ways. Um, for instance, you can you often, you know, in, in, in a situation and uh, – they often show up in um, in records of like court proceedings where they're actually serving as witnesses. Okay, um, they you know rarely do they do they actually um, you know you know write autobiographies um, like like presidents do. 
Um, so as you're getting into this, um, there are different things that, that, that this is co- accomplishes. Um, first of all, from the point of view of human interest and, and humanity, um, they're often, um, you know, they have, they have these fascinating lives um, and often very tragic lives because this is a war and, and war is mostly composed of tragedy. Um, and they have the most fascinating perspective on things and they, and they have um, really interesting voices. And when you can capture the snippets of those voices, it makes everything just seem more real, um, both to yourself as as the researcher and to the reader. And saying, in fact, at times, to me, as the researcher, it seems very much too real because a lot of their experiences are very tragic and you start to feel an awful lot for them. This actually was a, uh, a writing this book was a very emotional experience for me um, over, over the course of the years that it took. But besides the human interest side of this, the reality is that they're not chess pieces. Okay. You can't write about this war as if, well, this powerful person made this decision and moved that, and that powerful person made that a decision and made that counter move. Okay, um, and that's how things played out, and that's how, and, and it's their ability to sort of play chess that determines outcomes. Because in fact, these are people with real feelings, with real views of the situation, who have different tactics at their, at their disposal to either you know do what politicians and generals wanted them to do, or to not do what politicians and generals wanted them to do. And in fact, in a lot of times, they're the real protagonists in all of this. So to the extent that you can sort of capture their experiences and understand their motivations uh, for doing things, you're, you're actually helping to resolve some of the questions that even a sort of more traditional history of a war could resolve about, you know, why did this battle turn out this way? Why did this campaign turn out this way? Um, you know, why did this country win? Why did the other country lose? Um, so it also has a payoff um, besides the... The question of, of, of being able to capture people's experiences as human beings, it has a payoff of helping you understand these big questions about winning and losing and how things played out. Tell us about the two nations that fought this war, the comparative work that you were talking about a little while ago. Uh, what were the United States and Mexico like in the mid-1840s? Because in some ways, they were very different places. But as you said before, and as you make very clear in the book, they have a lot more in common than historians and lay readers often assume. So and politically, they're actually more similar than they are economically. And politically, the sort of big thing that's going on in both countries is that the national governments are weak, um, and people's attachment to nation is relatively weak. Um, and people's mostly experience life on a very local level, on a community level. Um, and what's going on is that national governments and national elites are trying to sort of build this idea that people are American or they're Mexican. And they do it with things like Independence Day celebrations and different kinds of civic ceremonies and huge parties like that and speeches and, and things like that. They do this through education. Uh, they do this in, in sort of routine administrative kinds of ways. But they're only intermittently successful in that. In both countries, um, there's quite a lot of political violence. It's different in the two countries, but there's quite a lot of it in both countries. Um, and so, you know, and politically, there are actually you know, pretty similar. They're both these countries that are sort of struggling to become the sort of unified countries they both will later be um, later on in the 19th century. Economically, they're very different. Uh, the U.S. has about three times the per capita income of Mexico. Um, it's an intensely wealthy country. It's known worldwide for its wealth by that point. And the U.S. has achieved this uh, partly due to some institutional things that were true about, about you know, sort of uh, British colonial culture before independence, but mostly because we were the we had the most fortuitous geography you could possibly have in the early 19th century world. We had um, almost all land east of the Rockies had enough rain to support agriculture with staple crops like cotton and wheat and corn. Um, and not only that, but this rain fell at different times during the year, and there were lots and lots of navigable rivers where you could use rivers. This is before the steam engine, mostly. Um, it's before railroads. It's before highways. And so the, the easiest way to transport anything, especially in bulk, is to use waterways. And we had the Mississippi River. We had the Ohio River. We had a series of rivers in the east, that, you know, the Hudson, the, the, the Susquehanna, the Delaware, all of these rivers that we could use to get products where we needed them to go and allowed our different kinds of farmers to specialize in things. 
And we had all of these things just while the Industrial Revolution was taking off in Europe. So we could export very profitably things like cotton, um, things like different kinds of food to Europe. We could export food to the Caribbean um, um, and, and the places all over the world. And we developed this sort of store of, 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 of economic wealth and economic momentum from this that we're still, in a lot of ways, still shapes our situation today. Mexico had the opposite of all of this. Um, Mexico had um, this extremely mountainous um, country where the rains only fall for about three months during any given year. Um, so it's a very, you know, very, you have a rainy season and a dry season in Mexico, much longer dry season. This is still true today. Um, and that means there are no navigable rivers. The rivers are either empty or they're rushing, you know, way too, way too fast to do anything with, uh, especially due to the mountainous terrain. And also, you know, most of the, the land where you can even use, do agriculture, you know, rain-fed agriculture in Mexico um, is in the center of the country, and it's far from the coast. You can't really do any kind of export agriculture in Mexico except with a few tropical products. Um, and so they, they, they experience none of this. Your average Mexican, in terms of their economic possibilities of your farm and you're growing something, is that if it has to go on muleback, and that means that, that, that it can't go very far before you can't make any money on it. So they have these highly, highly regionalized economies and much, a much weaker tie to this, this, this rapidly accelerating world economy centered on Europe in the early 19th century. So most Mexicans are, their economic possibilities are quite low. They're, 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 they're very poor and this affects their relationship uh, to everything that's going on during this war. Um, and, you know, they just, they just got less money and the government has less money um, as a result. And what about the armies themselves? Uh, who were the soldiers that fought in the Mexican-American War? Who made up the soldiers on both sides? And kind of more broadly, why were the military cultures of the two militaries so critical to the manner by which the war was fought? So each country had two different kinds of soldiers. And this makes things complicated, but also makes things interesting. Mm -hmm. So they both had regular armies, which were the armies that existed in peacetime. Um, in both cases, the officers are kind of middle-class officers. They have very similar lifestyles. They, they actually read the same books about, about how to be an officer uh, to a remarkable extent. They all read about the Napoleonic Wars. Um, I want to learn from Napoleon and Wellington and people like that. And in each case, um, the actual soldiers who made up the vast majority of the people in the army are from very poor backgrounds. Um, in the U.S., they're mostly poor people who are recruited in eastern cities. Um, and they join the army. Some of them are recent immigrants from Ireland or Germany. Others are not. But they're people who join the army because they're just struggling to make a living um, um, and having a difficult time. Um, um. And what army recruiters do is they offer them, um, and while they're plying them with drinks, always, um, they're offering them, hey, you can get clothing, you can get a roof over your head, you can get food, you can get pay, just sign here, you're in for five years. After that, you, you know, you'll have some money, you can do what you want with the money that you save during the five years. Um, and so these are people who sign up to take that deal. Um, and generally speaking, they're despised by other Americans because in doing that, they've agreed, they've signed away their life for five years, they've agreed to be subject to forms of discipline that are only used for slaves, um, um, like, like, like flogging and things like that because the army needs those things in order to, to train these men. Um, and the, and the most Americans think, well, these guys are only doing this because they're lazy drunkards. Only a lazy drunkard could take this deal. Okay. Um, and so they're despised by, by other Americans. Um, you know, urchins, street urchins literally chant at these soldiers as they're marching off to, to join their units. You know, uh, you know, see the dirty soldier, won't you work? Um, uh, what's the price of whiskey soldier? Um, because that's the way they see these people. Um, once they get in there, um, it turns out that the, the, you know, according to military culture of the day, both in Europe and, and, and Mexico, and in fact also in Russia and Great Britain and France, that you know, officers didn't care where the men came from. They, they understood that they could, through training and discipline and enforcing the bonds of comradeship, they could make them into good soldiers. They could make them into people who were willing to, to you know, risk their lives to follow orders and risk their lives especially for their fellow soldiers. Um, and so they didn't really care. Well, matter of fact, they tended, you know, armies in this, soldiers in this U.S. regular army tended to fight pretty well. On the Mexican side, um, you know, this, the officers felt the same thing about the soldiers. It didn't matter where they came from. We, we can turn them into good soldiers. But the problem was the Mexican government was very poor. They couldn't promise this roof over your head, this clothing, this, you know, regular food and regular pay. 
Um, they were often very poorly fed and very poorly clothed um, and, and very poorly paid. And so this meant the government had to do something else to get soldiers. And what it did is it, 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 it gave quotas to local officials, um, kind of a draft. And what local officials had to do was they had to, you know, oh, we've got to come up with three people this year to go into the army. But what would they do? Well, they would go out and look around them and see, you know, the people that are trying to live their lives and find the three people they could most do without, which from their point of view, this was about gender relations. Um, men who took care of their aged parents and supported their children and worked hard were the ones least likely to be recruited this way. The guys who were hanging out on a street corner gambling and, and drinking and whatnot and, and who uh, didn't get along with their parents or, or, or men who were separated from their wives and weren't supporting their wives, they were the ones that authorities would grab and throw into the army. Now, as time went on, there weren't always enough of these ne'er-do-wells. And so they would you know, have to take people away from their families sometimes to, to fulfill this quota, to, you know, to fill these quotas, um, which led to all kinds of, of disruption okay, um, and, 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 and even more tragedy. Um, but generally speaking, once these guys are in the army, um, the Mexican officers are also able to make them into good soldiers. Um, again, they reinforce these bonds of comradeship, they use physical discipline, they train them to use their tools, which are the weapons of war, and they also generally uh, fight really well during this, during this war. But once the war starts, there are other kinds of soldiers, because there, on the American side, there are people who volunteer to fight in the war. They, they sign up for either one year or for the duration of the war. And they're very different. Um, they're mostly from um, sort of upper working class and middle class families, um, more likely from the center of the country, you know, the Ohio River Valley, the Mississippi River Valley, um, the South. Um, they're from respectable families. And what they typically are are the sons of people who are doing reasonably well, prosperous farmers and merchants. Um, and they're very motivated by patriotism um, and also by, uh, to a large degree, racism. They sign up with their buddies. They elect their own officers, okay, um, and they get in there, um, and they're specifically going off to fight this war in Mexico rather than to fill a five-year contract. Um, and they have a very different experience, and they have a very different relationship with, with Mexicans. Um, they also, in some ways, their experience is also very gendered because they're leaving before they form families, um, and they're very interested in what's going on at home. Who's marrying who? Who's dating whom at home? They write a lot of letters back looking for information about, especially about girls they're interested in. Um, and their families um, send them a lot of information about this. But it's, it's, it's really interesting. The letters these guys write on Valentine's Day are actually really, really very, uh, very poignant. Um, and then there's a kind of Mexican equivalent of these volunteers, which are National Guard units in Mexico where people sign or from respectable families and often married. Um, they sign up for a local units that's designed for sort of local defense. They're part-time soldiers that can be mobilized in emergencies. Um, and, and they also tend to do, you know, reasonably well. They, they also elect their own officers and they're motivated by patriotism and by this desire to defend their communities. But they, um, the problem with them is that they're, it's hard to send these guys on campaign far from home because they're still supporting their families. Who's going to support their family if you send them away for four weeks or five weeks somewhere else? Um, especially given the fact that Mexican government can't really pay them. Um, and so this is a, a, a problem that they, they face um, that, that's also really very much a gendered problem. In the book, you employ uh, three lenses in – well, several lenses, but there's three that you really emphasize in the book in looking at this social history of this conflict. And those are race and gender, which you've talked a little bit about so far. But the third is you really emphasize the importance of religion in uh, in both the, the, the coming of the conflict and in the fighting of the war itself. Can you talk a little bit about why religion was a crucial factor in how these two armies uh, saw each other and how these two nations saw each other and how the war was fought? So in the U.S., um, this was a, a time of great religious fervor, what's called the Second Great Awakening, um, where um, many of the Protestant sects that we that we're familiar with today, many of the dominant denominations we're familiar with today, were actually you know founded between 1800 and 1850, roughly speaking. Um, and, but along with that, um, as there's this great religious fervor, camp meetings, uh, revivals, all of those sorts of things, there's an increasing amount of anti-Catholicism in the U.S. 
Um, it, there's nativism. Uh, people feel that these German and Irish immigrants who are coming in are kind of overrunning the country. They're seen as racially inferior. And in particular, Catholicism is seen as an inferior religion because they see this as a, a sort of a religion of the senses rather than a logical religion. Um, and as an authoritarian religion, because they, they they believe Catholics are supposed to do what priests tell them to do under under all circumstances. Um, so there's a lot of nativism in the United States, and it's directed, um, and a lot of anti-Catholicism. And the anti-Catholicism is, is is directed actually at two groups in this war. One, it's directed at um, Irish and German immigrants in the regular army. They face a very very intense prejudice against them. Uh, oftentimes by their own officers um, and certainly by other Americans. Um, but that same prejudice is actually um, uh, um, 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 deployed against Mexicans because Mexicans are all Catholic at this point. In fact, Catholicism is the state religion in Mexico. It's uh, Most Mexicans firmly believe that the only way they're going to get to eternal life is through Catholicism and through the Catholic sacraments. Um, and that's extremely important um, you know, for them because like, like for other 19th century people, they experience the death of loved ones often, not just of elderly loved ones, but of, of, of young loved ones. And so this notion that you're going to be reunited with your loved ones in eternal life is, is, is uh, if you do the right things, in other words, follow the right religion, is extraordinarily important to them. Um, and so that one of the things they think about the Mexican state in particular is that it's supposed to protect Catholicism. Catholicism is the only way to eternal life for all of us, um, and, and it's supposed to protect Catholicism. So they're faced with the United States, where, where, which they understand as a profoundly anti-Catholic place, where there's lots of anti-Catholic prejudice in the newspapers that are sent to Mexico and, and, and things like that. And, so, and, and they also experience the fact that, as, that many American soldiers, especially from these volunteer units, are very anti-Catholic. And they're not shy about um, desecrating churches and stealing things from churches, um, especially they see America, Mexican churches as being with all kinds of gold and silver ornaments and things like that and altars and, and, and statues as being, well, we should steal these things from them because that's the wrong religion anyway. That's that, that's a very hierarchical religion. We're doing them a favor by desecrating their churches. Some of them actually really believe this. Um, and so Mexicans tend to emphasize their Catholicism and the anti-Catholic prejudice of the U.S. And for many Americans, one of the reasons why Mexicans is inferior, one of the most important reasons, is because they're Catholic. Uh, and that leads to all these, these um, you know, terrible things that they do to, to, and to Mexican churches, and in many cases, in Mexican churches. So there's a kind of religious clash going on um, that's very important to both sides. The president, Polk, tries to minimize that. Um, he, he tries to you know, convince, and, and various American military leaders try to convince Mexicans, oh, no, we're not really anti-Catholic, but they're constantly being undermined by the things that their own soldiers do and by the things that many American uh, people are saying in the press that Mexicans have a lot of access to. So it's a, it's sort of, uh, it, it, it's a difficult deal for, for, for you know, Polk and for his generals to try to say, we're trying to you know, tamp down the violence of this war and tamp down Mexican fervor to resist by saying we're not anti-Catholic, that our own soldiers are undermining us. Describe the road to the Mexican-American War. Uh, as you said at the outset of, of this podcast, you the, the germ for this book began when you were witnessing uh, the United States build its case for the invasion of Iraq in 2002 and 2003. So tell us then why the United States opted to invade Mexico in the 1840s. And then uh, on, on sort of the, the flip side to that, why did Mexico opt to fight a bloody conflict to retain its territory rather than give in to American demands? So it's probably not correct to say the U.S. opted to fight Mexico. Uh, the U.S. is actually pretty divided about this war. Uh, who opted to fight Mexico uh, was were President Polk and, 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 and many people in the Democratic Party at the time. And their principal motivation was expansionism. Um, they felt like the U.S. should continue to expand. This is, the, uh, this is the time where they talked about the U.S. having a manifest destiny to get all the way to the Pacific Ocean. Um, and Mexico was simply something that was in the way. Um, Polk was convinced that Mexicans um, for, uh, you know, were inferior, they were weak, that their government was too divided, and that if he just offered them a bunch of money, um, they would sell him California, which is what he most wanted, and also New Mexico, which actually included most of the rest of what we call the Southwest today. Uh, it was all considered New Mexico then. New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, 
um, um, and pretty much all of that. Um, and and um, they didn't want to sell. And then he was convinced, well, then I can intimidate them. Um, he tried to intimidate them by marching an, an, an army um, um, to the real Mexican border, which was, which was uh, right down around Cor- Corpus Christi, Texas. Um, um, and then he marched those same troops. When that didn't work, he marched those same troops um, into what he called disputed territory, but was only really disputed according to Polk. Um, even American regular army officers who were part of this maneuver uh, were writing in their diaries, this is ridiculous. This is Mexican territory. We're marching into Mexican territory now. Um, um, and, and again, to try to intimidate them into, into giving up this territory. And then he thought maybe a short war would do it, but it turned out a short war wouldn't do it because the Mexicans were not willing to do this. Uh, they were not willing to do this for a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, they felt that knuckling under the U.S., uh, and, this is, uh, and they were much more unified about the war than Americans were, uh, but you know, most Mexican politicians felt that knuckling under the U.S. under these circumstances would mean admitting that Mexico really didn't have a bright future among the nations of the world, that they were doomed to be inferior, they were doomed to be weak, and they were not willing to make that choice. They also were very worried about the Mexicans who lived in these territories, and there were substantial numbers of Mexicans in both California and New Mexico. Um, And they were worried that they would not be allowed to keep their land, that they would be forced to convert from Catholicism, because, again, they were using this anti-Catholic press from the U.S., Um, 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 and and they weren't willing to sell other Mexicans. And when you think about this, for them, giving into the U.S. would have been a profoundly unpatriotic act, and it would have ended their political careers. So they dig in and they fight. They don't see the, the outcome of this war as being a really foregone conclusion at the beginning of the war. Um, it takes them months to realize that this is not a war that they can possibly win. Um, but many Americans didn't think it was at a foregone conclusion either at the beginning of the war. Um, you know, many Americans felt like this was a really dumb move um, to invade Mexico. This would lead to American military losses. Um, so... Once Polk is committed, though, he's committed because he's put his he's, he's put his honor on the line. He said this was this was actually, you know, in American territory where the first clashes of the war happened, which they happened long before any declaration of war. Um, and that ends up helping him because the opponents of the war, especially the Whig Party, had, had you know, they opposed American expansion, especially this kind of American expansion. They didn't want to fight a war of conquest. But they don't the Whigs in Congress don't get a choice about this until after blood has already been spent already been spilled. And Polk, when he, you know, he, he puts up the war bill, and the war bill contains not only the authorization of hostilities against Mexico, but it includes the financing of thousands of, of volunteer troops to go help the American army, which is already fighting okay, um, in this so-called disputed territory. So they feel like if they don't sign, if they don't sign off on that, if they don't vote for that, they will be accused of abandoning American soldiers who are already facing the fighting. Um, so they sign it, um, and they realize when this kind of war fever um, um, sweeps American um, um, towns, and it's, it's, it's actually fairly temporary, but it's very profound, um, that, well, we have to get along with this or else our political careers are over. Later on, um, they decide, well, this is a dumb idea, um, and they start to pull away their support. They start to question Polk a lot more. Um, and by the middle of the war, there are many, many very vocal opposition to the war in the U.S., which is one reason why Polk accepts a lot less than he wanted um, by the end. And wars are never just about the two armies that are in conflict with one another. And civilians in the Mexican-American War, as in all wars, play a crucial uh, role in deciding the outcome and are uh, obviously very strongly affected by the war itself. So can you tell us a bit about the role of civilians in this conflict? And in particular, since this war was an invasion by the United States into Mexico, how did the U.S. Army treat Mexican civilians? And what was the Mexican reaction to the treatment of civilians uh, by the U.S. Army? So... In both countries, um, especially in the sort of uh, in the sort of early uh, period of the war, but also continuing after that in Mexico, um, there's this feeling that civilians have to support this war effort. Um, so, like when they they send these volunteer regiments off from places in Kentucky and Indiana and Illinois and Tennessee, um, the men are sent off with big parties thrown by um, mostly by civilian women. Uh, the women, um, you know, you know. They, they sew the unit flag, they sew uniforms for the soldiers, um, um, you know, the unit flag of one unit in Indiana um, has, has the, the, the slogan on it that, that, that only the brave deserve the fair and the sort of assumption and the sort of 
argument behind that is, well, don't come back unless you've proven you're brave, and we're not going to mirror you unless you've proven that you're brave. Um, and so there's just this, this sort of, um, um, you know, support for the war effort in, 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 in Mexico. Uh, again, uh, Mexican civilians of all kinds make many donations to support this war. Um, donations of food, donations of money, those sorts of things. Women are heavily involved. Um, they sew bandages for the wounded. They also sew uniforms and unit flags and all sorts of things like that. Um, the difference is that on the Mexican side, um, um, civilians are also victims. Um, especially in northern Mexico, but also in other places, um, when American volunteer soldiers who are you know, profoundly interested in expansion and, and quite racist about Mexico and Mexicans arrive there and they find that they're supposed to sort of sit there in their camps um, and, um, and, and eat bad food and just wait because they're an occupation army for the most part. The fighting has already moved on by the time they're there. Um, they don't just sit there. They go out and they start to prey upon civilians. Um, they, 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 they are interested in the, the cattle the Mexicans have, um, in their clothing, in money. They, they, they steal from churches. And they're doing all of this at gunpoint. Um, and eventually the Mexican men of the area, who up until then have been kind of ambivalent about the U.S., start fighting back. They start this guerrilla war uh, against the volunteers in northern Mexico, uh, which becomes extraordinarily bloody because um, the two sides are killing each other in all kinds of ambushes and, and, and massacres and things like that. Um, and, and, and there's all kinds of revenge attacks. It's, it's a revenge and then revenge and then revenge and then revenge. Um, and it, it really, um, you know, totally tears apart northern Mexico for, for, you know, more than a year during this war. Um, so, you know, there's this intense, um, reaction against this violence that American volunteers have, have inflicted on, on Mexican civilians. Um, it also gives the Mexican government, Mexican intellectuals, lots of fodder for propaganda because once they're doing this in northern Mexico, once the American soldiers are doing this in northern Mexico, they, 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 they can talk about this all over the country and say, this is the fate that awaits all of us when the Americans come. You know, they're coming to rape your women. They're coming to steal your stuff. They're coming to desecrate your churches. You should contribute even more and you should sign up to fight. Um, and that makes the American um, invasion of central Mexico uh, much more difficult than it otherwise have been. With all of that said, this doesn't mean that all volunteers committed these kinds of crimes. And it's certainly true that American soldiers in the regular army, the one that existed before the war, um, had actually very good relationships with Mexican civilians. Um, not surprisingly, many, you know, many of them are German and Irish immigrants. A lot of them are Catholic. Um, they, go to, they go to mass with Mexican civilians. Um, um, you know, they don't, and, and they don't have, have much better discipline in their units, and they don't commit as many crimes. Um, but for, you know, a lot of civilians in this war, uh, the experience is one of deprivation, uh, different kinds of deprivation. You know, the families uh, back in the U.S. of these American volunteers uh, are constantly writing them, trying to find out if they're still alive or not. Uh, when they hear about battles, they scan the list of casualties, trying to see if they see any names that they recognize on them. Um, you know, they're worried these men will not come back, right? Um, you know, Mexican civilians have a similar experience for the for for their men that are that are soldiers. If they're from a poor family, um, they're probably you know even poorer because the because the man is off at the war. Um, in many cases, you go from you know really being very poor to literally being starving to death in these circumstances. Um, and, 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 and they're also worried that, that, that people are not going to come back. And they're also experiencing a lot of physical hunger um, and the possibility they're going to be victimized by American soldiers. Um, the whole thing comes off as being a lot very tragic. And one of the, one of the things that, that um, you know, really kind of uh, affected me a lot as I'm writing this book is that the more you understand these people and the more you can see their name and hear them write about their experience, the more they're real to you, the more they're real to you, the, the more tragic the whole thing is. Um, they, you know, they're not just names. Um, they're real people to you. And of course, you try to make them real people to your readers. And I always find that that's really one of the powers of history as a discipline is that it really it forces you to be empathetic with people in the past. The more that you read documents and the more that you read accounts of what happened in the past, it, it really drives a point home that these are people that we're talking about, really. So I, I know that feeling very well. So 
We've been talking about the the importance of the home front to the war in terms of civilians, but uh, kind of higher level politics also mattered quite a bit too, because as you said before, this is a period of contentious partisan politics in both the United States and in Mexico. So can you tell us how internal politics in these two nations uh, shaped the outcome of the Mexican-American War? So in Mexico, it didn't shape it that much in the sense of there's, they're divided politically, but the one thing they're united about is actually the war itself. Um, um, you know, whether you're liberal, whether you're conservative, whether you're federalist, whether you're centralist, um, the war uh, seems to be something that that, that, that that unites all of these people. They have um, some disagreement on how you're going to actually pay for the war. Um, you know, uh, at a certain point in the war, the government tries to force the Catholic Church to give up some of its property to pay for the war. And for uh, many Mexicans, this is a dumb idea because um, the Catholic Church is extraordinarily important in ensuring eternal life for everyone you know, over a long period of time. And the war is a temporary phenomenon. Um, and so and, and so they, 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 they work and in some cases fight to reverse that. But generally speaking, Mexican politicians of all stripes, they believe in the war and they believe they have to fight the U.S. as hard as they can and as long as they can. Um, they disagree about the means in, in, in some cases. In the U.S., it's, 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 it's different. Um, you know, the Whig Party is never very enthusiastic about the war, although many Whig congresspeople, as I mentioned before, vote for the war um, when they feel like they have to do that in order to not leave the American troops who are already fighting um, stranded without reinforcements. Um, and some of them even sign up for the war, especially the younger um, the, the, the younger um, um, sons of Whig politicians. Um, they're, they're really not highly attached to it, and especially when things start to go south in the U.S., when they do start to go south. Um, they start to pull back as much as they can. They start to ask many more questions. And pretty soon, Whig politicians are openly challenging Polk and Congress, basically telling him he's a liar. One of the people who got uh, whose initial fame come from, came from telling Polk that he was a liar was a young man named Abraham Lincoln. He was a congressman from Illinois at that point. And, um, you know, Polk had, had argued that in the initial clash of the war, American blood had been sped, had been had been spilled on American soil. Um, this is in what is now in Texas, um, right, right, right near Brownsville. Um, and 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 um, you know the Whigs believed this this territory was actually Mexican territory. And Lincoln became known as Spotty Lincoln temporarily. That was his first political nickname because he kept saying in Congress, "Show me the spot where this blood was spilled. I don't believe you. Show me the spot where this blood was spilled." Um, uh, and so, of course, he was an opponent of the war, um, and you know, many other prominent politicians uh, in the Whig Party uh, opposed this war. And what it eventually does for Polk over a period of time is it limits its options, especially it limits its options to keep fighting in order to get a better deal. Um, um, originally, he wants just New Mexico and California. Remember, New Mexico includes Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, all kinds of places like that, but it's all called New Mexico then. Um, but later, after the Mexicans resist so strongly, Polk is interested in the idea of taking more Mexican territory basically to punish them um, and to make the cost of the war worthwhile. When eventually the treaty actually gets to him um, and, and he ends up signing it even though he doesn't really like it uh, because he realizes he can't get more. He's taken the American people as far as, uh, as he can take them. There's too much opposition to the war at that point. Um, so it, ha- it, it sort of affects the outcome that way. Um, you know, so so you know, Polk ironically um, is is not terribly happy with um, with you know what he gets out of this war. We haven't really discussed battles and specific military campaigns all that much in this interview today, but it's worth it's worth noting that you do discuss those in some depth in the book. And uh, speaking as a as a non expert in military history, I think you do a really good job of making what can be very complex military maneuvers and battlefield setups and all that pretty discernible for someone like myself. So I really enjoyed reading that part of the book, even though we haven't talked about it that much today. Um, but that said, could you give us just a very brief kind of 30,000 foot overview of the course of the war itself? And then maybe a little more specifically, what was combat like? What was the experience? of fighting like for soldiers during the war? So the 30,000-foot overview, um, the easiest way to do this is to say there were basically two separate campaigns in the war that really mattered. Um, um, uh, One was uh, starting from around what's now Brownsville, Texas, an army led by Zachary Taylor, who later became U.S. president, 
uh, marched into northern Mexico. Um, right, marched south to the major city of Monterey and the slightly smaller city of Saltillo and, and Tampico. And the goal was, um, you know, to sort of occupy northern Mexico and use that to force the Mexicans to, to agree to the loss of New Mexico and California. Um, they quickly realized there were two things that were wrong with this with this with this theory. Uh, one was that you couldn't keep going south because you kept coming. If you kept going south, you would run into desert terrain that American armies could not cross very easily at all. Um, but the second problem was that the Mexicans refused to negotiate. This wasn't enough. Um, so then they hit on this idea that in order to force Mexico to the negotiating table, what they had to do was invade central Mexico. And to do that, they had an amphibious campaign uh, led by Winfield Scott. Um, which invaded Mexico through the Caribbean coast, uh, starting at Veracruz, and then marched up into the highlands and took Mexico City, um, and that ended up being the telling blow that forced Mexico to the to the to the to the uh, negotiating table. While these two things are going on, um, um, uh, the U.S. also sends forces to occupy New Mexico and California, but there's relatively few people who live there, and the forces that are sent to conquer them are actually relatively small. So even though that's strategically important. Um, there are relatively few people engaged um, in that, um, uh, but that's what you can think of as kind of a third campaign. So moving on to you know the actual experience of battle, uh, it was uh, bloody and it was terrifying for most of these men. Um, they couldn't necessarily see very far because of the terrain or or because of the huge clouds of gun smoke when you fired your muskets and your cannon. There's no smokeless powder and there's clouds and billowing clouds of gun smoke. Um, and while you're there, um, you're also you've got this kind of sensory overload going on because there's enormous sounds, the sounds of these muskets, the sounds of, the, of, 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 of these cannon are terrifying, the sounds of, of, of cannonballs sort of tearing through your buddy next to you and the screams of your buddies as they're dying next to you are really, really very overwhelming. And meanwhile, your sergeants and your officers are telling you, okay, st- stand there, wait. Um, um, you're, oftentimes you're being killed by people you can't even see. Um, uh, and 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 your job is simply to follow orders. Well, march three steps this way, march two steps forward, stand there, and you know, if the enemy comes into view, it's going to be at relatively short range. Um, and sometimes, and you know, literally when you're you're stabbing each other with bayonets and swords and, and lances and things like that, um, for them this is this is this is an extraordinarily terrifying experience. And what kind of brings them through this more than anything else? is the fact that they're with these guys they've been living with and, and, and training with um, for a long time. In some cases, in the case of America, uh, 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 Mexican National Guard troops or American volunteers, people from their hometowns, in other cases, for the regular armies, not. But, you know, they love their, their friends, and they're not going to run away as long as their friends are not running away because they would be leaving their friends in their lurch. And they're also afraid of their, you know, for the reputations. If you're and this type of buddies, and you're the first one to flinch and run away, you're going to hear about it for the rest of your experience with them. So they don't want to experience that. Um, um, you know, you're doing all of these things while often you're hungry and thirsty, the rain might be pouring down on top of you. Um, in some cases, um, um, it's, 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 it's just, a, it's just a, a, a very terrible experience. And a lot of them, um, especially people like the American volunteers, had, had been taught you know, they, they believed that war was noble. Noble, it was about it was about bravery. Um, it was about marksmanship and skill and things like that. And what they found out when they really were there was not not about that. It's about endurance. It's about it's about just hanging in there um, and 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 dying. Um, and and uh, they didn't find it to be quite the noble thing that they that they that they expected it to be. Um, so you know, this is the sort of experience for these people that 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 you know. The generals try to understand the big picture and they try to move men around to deal with different threats and to carry out different tactics and things like that. For the, for the people on the ground who are actually doing this, you know, it's mostly about, well, you know, they tell us this is where we're going to be and this is where we're going to be. And, and, uh, and it can be very frustrating for them, especially if they're being killed by people that they can't even see. And it's like, well, why is it important that we be here and die here? Why can't we at least run toward the enemy and try to get back at them? Um, um, when oftentimes that's kind of the worst thing they could possibly do militarily. Um, um, so it's, 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 it's a very, you know, it's, it's a very terrifying experience. And for many of them, um, um, they're, they're terrified. And then after the battle, when they look out on the, 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 the scene that's left by all of this after the fighting is over, you know, then they get very, they're very upset and very sad because there are all kinds of people and wounded people 
um, and, and dead people all over the place, you know, fields full of bodies. Um, you know, it's not an experience that I would recommend uh, 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 being in battle. And like all 19th century conflicts, the experience of being in battle wasn't even really the most common experience for soldiers. And a soldier in the Mexican-American War, like the Civil War and like like many wars throughout history, they were much more likely to die of disease or from exposure or exhaustion than they were to die in combat. And if I remember correctly, that's where the title of the book comes from, The Dead March, correct? That is exactly where the title comes from. Um, uh, the title comes specifically from um, a, a quote from an American soldier, a volunteer soldier who's in a camp um, near the Rio Grande River. Um, and every he says the dead march is here near her nearly every, mar- every every night. And the dead march is funeral music. Um, and what's happening is the people are dying of disease. Basically, all his friends are dying of disease. And these young men who aren't used to being around a lot of death are burying people every single night. Um, and they're burying people from their hometowns every single night. Um, and it was said that the dead march was, was played so often in these camps along the Rio Grande that even the mockingbirds um, learned to sing it. Um, and you hear the mockingbirds sing, singing the dead march or, or tweeting the dead march. Um, but for most of these soldiers, the time you spend in battle is, you know, a few days out of the year or two or five years in the case of regular army soldiers they spend in the army. I, you know, most of the time, if they're lucky, they're bored sitting around camp eating bad food. If they're unlucky, um, they're dying of disease or they're doing these extremely long, difficult marches, dying of heat stroke, um, dying of exhaustion. Um, in the case of Mexican soldiers, in particular, dying of malnutrition. Um, you know, you know, this is this is the, the sort of experience that they have is that is that is that war is, you know, lots of marching, lots of sitting around in camp. And a little bit of these terrifying experiences of battle. So we're both historians, and for a living, we make arguments, among other things. Um, so I'm going to ask you, if you could, to make an argument for me about why the United States won the war, and then secondarily, what were the long-term effects of the outcome of the conflict for both nations? So until now, the sort of traditional point of view that's been accepted is that the U.S. was simply already a country then. It was more unified, um, and, and, and that is why the U.S. won the war. Um, what I found, you know, after digging into this for a few years, is that it's not, that's not really not true. I mean, Mexico is more unified than people believe it to be. The U.S. is much less unified than people believe it to be. What really makes a difference is the U.S. has tons and tons of money, um, and the Mexicans have nothing. Um, the Americans don't even raise taxes to pay for this war. They simply take out loans that they're going to repay with taxes that already exist, okay? Um, and they do that very easily, actually. Um, <coughs> the Mexican government you know, can't feed its soldiers. It can't pay its soldiers. It can't clothe its soldiers. The Mexican soldiers are fighting with, you know, you know, very old used muskets left over from the Napoleonic Wars from 40 years ago that have been sort of sitting in warehouses in London that they bought cheap because that's what they could afford. Um, 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 and, they, you know, they break very often under battle conditions because they're very old. Um, um, but mostly they can't they can't afford to feed these soldiers. They can't afford to pay these soldiers. So either by appealing to their patriotism and getting them to sign up voluntarily for National Guard regiments, or by you know amp, you know going through local officials and getting local officials to involuntarily recruit other soldiers for regular army regiments, they can always make new armies. What they can't do is they can't keep these armies together because what happens when people are hungry all the time um, and after they haven't been fed for three or four days um, is they start to go looking for food. Okay, um, and you can kind of try to check that with you know having a sergeant at the end of the camp at the entrance of the camp not letting people leave you can only do that to a certain extent um so what happens is that it, very often um and mexican soldiers um you know they, they experience a lot of this deprivation um and even when they're in you know they get to battles and they haven't eaten for three days before the beginning of the battle which you can expect would be an extremely difficult situation that mexican officers can't even decide when it is they're going to give battle and under what circumstances. They're constantly trying to calculate, okay, how much how much resources have I got? How far can we test the patience of these men about not being fed enough? I have to fight today because two days from now, these guys aren't going to be here because they'll have gone off looking for food. Um, so they're in this, this situation 
where they, you know, they, you know, they, they have to give battle, you know, when, when they have the soldiers together and before the soldiers disperse in search of food. And this puts them in a tactical disadvantage, um, you know, time and time again. You know, they're, they're constantly surprised by the fact the Americans are so well fed. Um, and, 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 um, you know, it, the reason why this is going on is, you know, there's two things that are going on. Um, you know, first of all, the Mexican economy is about one third the size per capita of the U.S. economy. Um, and, and so Mexico is poor to begin with. But once the war starts, the expenses of the government go up very dramatically because they've got to recruit all these soldiers. They've got to arm all these soldiers. They've got to clothe all these soldiers. And simultaneously, the Americans are blockading the coast. And most governments then, including the U.S. government, got most of their money from taxes on imports. Um, and so what's going on is that, well, the Mexican government can no longer collect those taxes because goods are coming into the country, but they're, but they're coming in through ports that, where there are no tax collectors because they have to evade the American blockade. Um, or in some cases, the Americans have actually occupied the ports and they're collecting the taxes on goods coming into the country. Um, so the government has, has, has even less money than it did before, and they're trying to fight this war. So what happens is, is that, you know, eventually they realize we just can't keep scraping together armies and we can't keep, you know, trying to feed these armies, especially after the fall of Mexico City. And that means they're going to have to give up this territory that the U.S. wants. Um, even when they do that, they make strenuous efforts to try to protect the rights of Mexicans in those territories. Um, and that's what they most fight for um, in, the, in the treaty negotiations. Um, but, you know, at that point, the war is already lost. As far as the consequences, the consequences for the U.S. are even more tragic. Um, the U.S. is very divided before the war. The war temporarily, in the first few months of the war, a lot of Americans get behind it and it, and it unites the U.S. in and, 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 and very fervent but very temporary kinds of ways. But as soon as the war is over and the U.S. has acquired all of this territory, um, then the problem is, well, what are we going to do with all of this territory? How is it going to be settled? Under what basic set of cultural rules and, 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 uh, and, and economic laws is this going to be settled? And, and, and the question, you know, which was already very intense in the U.S., was between slave labor and free labor, um, mostly free labor in the north, mostly slave labor in the south. Well, that the, the question of what to do about these new territories eventually tears the U.S. totally apart, um, leading to 1861, leading to a war which in the in the U.S. is even more you know, is much more terrible than the Mexican War. The size and scale of the Civil War are, are totally unprecedented. Um, you know, you know, you know, more than 700,000 Americans die in the Civil War. Um, that would be millions and millions of people today. A, a sort of similar Civil War. In terms of casualties proportional to the population, it would be about seven million Americans died dead today, um, uh, which is you know really great. We think we're a divided country. So far, we haven't had a civil war in which seven million Americans died. Let's keep it that way. Um, hmm. You know, it's it's in, it, so you, you know Ulysses S. Grant was a young American lieutenant in general in, in, the, in the regular army during the war. Um, he fought in the war. Um, he did as well as he could. He, he fulfilled his duty as well as he could, but he always hated it. Um, he, he thought this was a war of conquest. Like a lot of American regular army officers, he thought this was a war of conquest that was, that was unworthy of the U.S. Well, when he writes his memoirs years later and he writes about the Mexican War, he says something along the lines, this is not a direct quote, they don't have it in front of me. He says, well, um, nations like people pay for their sins, and the American payment for fighting the Mexican War was the Civil War. Um, he sees this, the, the Mexican War as this sin which we, we, that God punished us. Uh, for this by giving us the civil, um, which is a very powerful thing for him to say, especially since he's writing it as he's dying uh, of, of throat cancer, which is why he wrote his memoirs in the first place. He needed a legacy for his for his family. And he didn't have any money left. Um, um, so, you know, it's 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 the, the price the U.S. pays for fighting this, this Mexican war turns out to be, you know, really intense. Mexico, of course, also loses intensely, especially through losing all of this territory. Um, and it turns out that when the Americans were after this territory, they didn't really have any idea that there was mineral wealth there. They thought of it mostly as an extension of this, you know, well-watered eastern U.S. Um, that it would lead to agricultural expansion. Um, what was really important, it turns out, was the fact that there were all kinds of minerals there, beginning with the California Gold Rush, which happened right after the war, but with many other gold and silver rushes uh, throughout not only California, but um, the 
the New Mexico, New Mexico territory, which you know included Colorado and Arizona and places like that, and not just gold and silver, but also you know industrial metals like copper and and and, and iron. Um, you know, you know, we 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 ended up gaining terrific amounts of mineral wealth from all of this, and all of that was lost to Mexico um, because we took it from them um, without even knowing that it was there. Ironically, um, and and so it really. Um, you know, forced Mexico into this situation where it was going to be even more poor after the war than it was before the war. If there's, <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, yeah. Um, thinking about, about summarizing the book a bit, uh, if there's one takeaway that you hope readers come away with, what might that be? And I know that's kind of a big question, but, uh, but just thinking about the book as a whole, what, what is sort of one of the big takeaways that you hope readers have from, from the, from the, the narrative that you tell here? So, um, you know, I'm tempted to say, well, the takeaway is don't fight wars. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I really felt I was a pacifist before I started to write this book. I definitely was by the time I finished it. Um, you know, but I think that the other takeaway is that things don't really work out the way that you plan. Um, Paul, Paul really didn't get what he wanted in the way that he wanted to get. Um, he wanted, you know, to, to you know to strong arm this territory out of Mexico without fighting a war. Um, he failed miserably at that, um, and everyone paid. You know, thousands of people died because he failed in this gamble that he was going to strong arm Mexico out of this war. <coughs> I think the, the the other thing that that I think was the big takeaway is that you know we make all of these um, assumptions about about. You know, why the U.S. is successful? Why is the U.S., you know, a relatively prosperous, relatively democratic state in which most people don't live in fear of their lives? That's a definition of success in the world today. Um, we make all these assumptions like it was, it was fated to happen. There was something that was, that was, that was, that was, that was really, um, you know, you know, very fundamental about American culture coming out of the colonial period that made this happen. Um, and, and many Americans at the time would have thought this too. Many Americans of 1846 would have thought this too. That turns out really not to be the case. The U.S. is much more like Mexico uh, uh, um, than at that moment um, than people are willing to admit. Um, and when we have this, we try to project this notion that that, that we were sort of fated to become um, this relatively successful country. We have to skate over a lot um, to get there. We have to skate over a lot of violence. Against African Americans, a lot of violence against Native Americans, and uh, um, you know, throughout the 19th century um, and continuing today, a lot of violence against African Americans, a lot of violence against Mexicans. We have to skate over all of that. We have to also skate over the Civil War, um, and not only the Civil War, but you know, the violence during Reconstruction, the violence during Jim Crow, the violence during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, um, you know, it's it's past the time when we can get away with just sort of skating over all of these things. I mean, we have to, to kind of just find a reckoning about, um, you know, how did we get to be the good things that we are now? And what are the things that we really, you know, need to continue to work on um, to become a better version of what we are now? And my last question, uh, I know that you spent a very long time working on this book, but it's been out for a couple of years now. Can we get a preview of what you've been working on over the last couple of years? Maybe a, a next project that you have coming down the way? So there's two things I'm thinking about now. I'm working on um, both part-time and eventually I'm going to decide which one I'm going to do first um, and get my you know, actually prioritize any one or the other. Um, one is, um, in the course of, 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 of researching this book, I came across a, a really very uh, amazing memoir by an American um, soldier who was one of these guys who joined the regular army before the war because he was very poor, um, a guy from Ohio, actually. Um, and um, it's a possibility that what I'm going to actually do is kind of come up with, a, with an edited version of that and get that out with the press. Um, he has a very, very fascinating story, a very fascinating voice, um, and it's a kind of source that doesn't, it's not very available to people. So I may do that. Um, the other thing I'm, I'm, I'm working on, though, um, is another comparative U.S.-Mexico thing, um, uh, this one focusing mostly on the 1820s and 1830s, around the sort of questions of race and democracy. Because what happens in the U.S. is that um, income qualifications are removed from voting by the different states, and all white men get the right to vote. But even, even as um, more and more restrictions are placed on African Americans, on women, on Native Americans, um, and the U.S. becomes a, a democracy, but very much a racial democracy, where white men are all considered to be equal with each other, 
and 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 you know at the same time they're 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 very much reducing the rights of of, of racial minorities. Well, Mexico has universal uh, male suffrage at the same time. In Mexico, it's not racialized um, because one of the things that they fought for in the Mexican War of Independence was the end of racial distinctions, um, and that gets enshrined in Mexican constitutions and laws. Um, so in Mexico. It doesn't matter whether you have African blood. It doesn't matter whether you have Native American blood. Um, you're still considered a citizen, and you're still allowed to vote. Um, and this leads to a, a very different form of politics. And ironically, um, um, a lot of the sort of institutional mechanisms of politics are quite similar. We're having these kind of rowdy elections where you know crowds are around voting tables, and there's no there's no secret ballot, and and there's a lot of drinking involved in having elections. But the politics of it are actually very fundamentally different in the U.S. and Mexico. So I'm thinking of something along those lines, which you know would be another kind of really long-term project, although it would not take quite as long as this book. Thank <laughs> God. <laughs> Peter Gardino is a professor of history at Indiana University, and his latest award-winning book is *The Dead March: A History of the Mexican-American War*, which came out with Harvard University Press in 2017. Thanks again for joining me today, Peter. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure. 